Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I'm going to start by asking, and it's a little bit off-season, if we've got any Eurovision fans in the room. I appreciate that. Eurovision. See, I have to admit, I don't really enjoy it. I'm not a big fan. I'm with you, Vic. I just... And don't get me started on trying to understand why Australia are part of it all of a sudden. Like, what is that about? I often watch it because I'm at somebody else's house, and I've got no choice over what to watch. This year, the year we did well, second time in my lifetime I think that's happened, I didn't watch any of it and thought that would be the end of it. Actually, it wasn't the end of it. After we did so well, some of you might know that we then ended up having to host the whole competition next year, she says enthusiastically. (laughs) So when it was narrowed down to who would host it, it was between Liverpool and Glasgow. Now, some of you might know, I work tourism in in the tourism industry I'm a tour operator so I plan trips around the UK for visitors now as part of that I book hotel rooms so what you don't want often is a really big event it's not a joy for us so May next year um, I'm gonna just slow that down Um, yes I was looking at hotel rooms in Glasgow for May next year and there were literally none. Not one hotel room in Glasgow could be booked. And I've got an awful lot of hotels. All our contracts had been voided out. And all well-known booking sites, which you probably have heard of, there was literally nothing for the whole of May 2023. Liverpool probably didn't, but I didn't care because I wasn't looking for Liverpool. <laughs> so I had to go back to some very mystified Americans to tell them they couldn't stay in Glasgow. Trying to get them to understand it was quite special, but nonetheless, we got there, put them somewhere else. Now, given that Christmas is fast approaching, this whole sense of there not being room for something might start to ring a bell. It might be a part of the story that you're familiar with, that you've heard of, that you've sat through nativities and thought about. And we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2 today. But before we start, I thought it would be useful to have a look at the beginning of Luke. Luke, very usefully, provides us with an explanation as to his account of Jesus' life and that he has written. So just starting at Luke chapter 1 and verse 1, which is on the screen. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now what we see here is Luke is setting out his store. He's saying that this account of of Jesus' life is trustworthy. It's not Google, it's not Wikipedia that people can log on to and change. It's not a social media status or a conspiracy that's presenting itself as truth. And I've become one of those people, probably like most of us, 
that when I see something, I want to check it out before I even form an opinion, just to make sure that it's true. We're taught to be suspicious. But what is happening here is that Luke's saying, do you know what, this is true. You can trust this. Luke has spoken to people that knew Jesus. He's spoken to eyewitnesses. He's ensuring that this is not Chinese whispers that is being passed around to people. In Tom Wright's book on Luke's gospel, he says, and I love this, that Luke opens his gospel like a huge stone entrance, welcoming us into a large building. He is saying something solid that we can trust. He creates a grand doorway into his gospel. He invites us to come in and make ourselves at home. And I love that. And with that in mind, let's have a look and make ourselves at home for a little bit in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinus was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. Now in the chapter before this, Luke tells us the story of God speaking first to Zechariah, a priest who's getting on in years. Together with his wife Elizabeth, they have been unable to have children. God shows up via an angel to Zechariah to say they're going to have a child who will prepare the way for the Lord. We then know that that's John the Baptist that is is talking about. The same angel then appears to a young unmarried girl called Mary, again, something we're familiar with, to say she's going to have a son, that he is to be called Jesus and that he will be the son of the Most High. In other words, he's going to be the son of God. And I won't go into much detail, but it is worth noting here that there are parallels with the start of the beginning of Israel, that God is showing up with a promise that seems absolutely ridiculous. It's impossible. And certainly there's nothing that a human person can do to make this happen. Yet God is promising that something's about to happen. So if we fast forward to the chapter we're in today, we're introduced to Caesar Augustus. He was the first Roman emperor and by all accounts, the centre of power at that time. Here was a man that was used to pomp and ceremony. He was used to being obeyed by everybody. One word from him, and here we see that the whole of the Roman world has jumped into action. Families are being sent back to towns where their family line have come from. Now, I'm sure that would be inconvenient, if not slightly tricky for some of us in this room. I think when I last checked, my brother did our DNA a couple of years ago, And we were on at least three continents. So trying to narrow that down would be tricky. And that's with good transport. Never mind here when there's no good transport system and there's not (laughs) booking.com. Because of this order that's been given, we see Joseph and Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, travel from Nazareth in Galilee to Bethlehem because Joseph comes from the line of David. I just want to pause and take that in. 
Because Jesus, who would be fully man and fully God, is turning up in the midst of scandal and mess. We know from Matthew's Gospel that when Joseph found out Mary was pregnant, he, quite reasonably, had trouble understanding what was going on. He was planning to quietly divorce Mary until God intervened and sent an angel to have a word with him, which I can imagine was quite the conversation. Luke's account of Jesus' life often brings in the insignificant of the day, often brings in the poor, the outsider, the Gentiles, the women. Mary, pregnant, unmarried, and Joseph standing by her is where the Son of the Most High is about to show up. And it's not just his birth that is scandalous and messy. Jesus, in his ministry, when we go through the Gospels, we know that he turns up in similar places, talking to a shunned Samaritan woman at a well, eating with tax collectors, healing people on the Sabbath, and the ultimate scandal, dying a criminal's death on a cross for us so that we can be reconciled with God. Now, we might have some friends fans in the rooms, probably dates me from my age, but I recently read an excerpt from Matthew Perry's autobiography, who played Chandler from Friends. My favourite, probably, which gives away my love of sarcasm, probably a bit too much. (laughs) But he talks about his wrestle with drug and alcohol addiction. And he describes an incident that he had when he was just desperate for a breakthrough in that battle. He writes, In the moment I said, God, please help me, I whispered. Show me that you are here. God, please help me. I started to cry, uncontrollable weeping. Not because I was sad, but because for the first time in my life, I felt okay. I felt safe, taken care of. Decades of wrestling with life and sadness, always being washed away. Like a river of pain, gone into oblivion. I had been in the presence of God. I was certain of it. And isn't that just an example of God showing up in our mess? And doesn't he do it all the time? I'm sure if he spoke to most of us in this room, we would have an occasion, probably more than one occasion, where we could tell you how God showed up in our mess. I could probably fill a full half hour of that for me, which I'm not going to. But if you want to ask me later, I can tell you. Probably edited highlights. But I do wonder if that is something that's familiar to you today as well. That in the uncertainty of your life, at the moment, you just need God to come in and show up. And I'd say if you wouldn't at this point pin your colours to the mast and call yourself a Christian, if you haven't made any space for Jesus in your life, I would ask you to consider asking this God that we're talking about today, who sent his son into the messiness and scandal to rescue us, to bring his kingdom. I'd challenge you to think about asking him into your heart. So it's not like approaching a king as we understand earthly kings. And didn't we see that this year with the funeral of the queen, all the pomp, all the things that people have to go through? But this king, he was born into a stable and he wants you to come to him. And if that is your desire, the beautiful thing is that you come to him just as you are without any pomp and ceremony, any airs and graces. You're free to just ask him. Essentially, you can just chat to God. You can chat to the king. Now, another thing moving on that I want to note is what is happening here in Bethlehem 
is also the fulfillment of prophecy, which Tom O'Toole spoke to us a little bit about last week. Something is starting to happen here through the birth of Jesus that God had spoken to his people about hundreds of years before. Again, this is pointing to this being something we can trust. So I just want to have a look in two places in the Old Testament where this is talked about. So firstly, and again, it's on the screen. Micah chapter 5, verses 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And then another one in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Again, Tom opened up to these last week. This is about Jesus coming to us as a baby, so small and insignificant, into our darkness, trouble and strife, to bridge the gap between us and God. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And I love those verses. I love, one of my favourite things about Christmas are these verses. And I'd I'd love to hear it all year round because, because that is the Christmas story. It's all year round. Anyway. I find it quite amusing that this all-powerful leader that we've just talked about, this, all, this leader from Rome that can just demand everything, God's actually using him to fulfil a prophecy of his birth. See, there's no question that Jesus comes from the line of David and that Bethlehem, which plays a vital but small footnote in this story, that God is starting to implement his rescue plan, a rescue that's born out of love from creator to created, whose heart is for reconciliation between us and him. So one of the commentators says, the birth of this little boy is the beginning of a confrontation between the kingdom of God in all its apparent weakness, insignificant and vulnerability, and the kingdoms of the world. So moving on, let's pick up in Luke again at verse 6. And I'll just read that again for you. And while they were there, The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, I hate to be the one to break it to you, but it might well be that the nativities that we've been part of, watched in school school halls or seen on television, might not technically be historically or biblically accurate. I know, I'm sorry, I hate to be the one to bring bad news. However, I've got to do what the text tells me, guys. The image that we have of Mary, nine months pregnant, on a donkey, ready to pop, and having to give birth in a stable surrounded by animals, is not how the birth of Jesus is understood by people that have got a better grasp of Middle Eastern culture at this time that was taking place than certainly I have. Hopefully most of us, are, I'm not the only one that that's true for. No comment. 
neither, I am afraid, and this is another one, is it in all likely that all these grumpy innkeepers that we see saying no to Joseph, or even the kindly innkeeper that lets the family use his stable, it's probably not what was taking place. That's not to say you can't take pride if playing the innkeeper was your last or only starring role on the stage. Or if you've got children that are innkeepers this year, don't send them to me, because I might tell them just for the fun of it. No, the word that we understand as for no room in inn conjures up the picture of a full hotel or bed and breakfast or guest house. But this isn't what's being referred to in the passage. The word room here is better understood as space, as in there's no space on the worktop for anything else, or there's no space on the cooker for another pot on Christmas Day. The word for in being used here is translated from a Greek word, and I promise this is my only one, and I didn't know it before I started to prep for this. (laughs) It's the word called katalima, and it's not the same word that would have been used for a hotel. We see this word again later on in Luke chapter 22, when Jesus is on his final journey to Jerusalem, preparing for the Passover before the crucifixion. In Luke 22, verses 10 to 12, let's just pick up that story. It says, Jesus said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room furnished. Prepare it there. See, the inn that we think we know is not what is happening. It's more likely to be a family room, or as we see in Luke 22, a guest room. The room would have had mangers or feeding troughs cut into the floor at one end of the room, which I think there is an image of. Yeah, yeah. This is what the setup would have been like. A better understanding for us then of what's going on here is that the inn is probably a guest room of a friend or family member whose hospitality Joseph may have been relying on was already full because of all the people heading back to Bethlehem for the census. Now, this is not the same image as me trying to find a room or a hotel in Glasgow when they're all sold out. It's not Joseph who not doing the equivalent would have been. It's not not that he hasn't spoken to a tour operator. It's not that he hasn't checked booking.com or booked an Airbnb before they're making their way to Bethlehem. And also, there's no inhospitality implied here within the passage. What we don't see is door after door closed in the face of Joseph and Mary. And I found the simplicity of that um, quite incredible. I can't imagine how Joseph and Mary's friends must have felt about not being able to put them up in their guest room because somebody else was in it after the event. Can you you imagine being the person that says, yeah, I really love you, but my room's just full. It's too full for the son of the God to give birth in. Sorry, guys. You're just going to have to hang out in my stable. You'd feel dreadful. They just didn't have the space for son of the most high the saviour of the world, the Messiah that they were all waiting for. And yet, as someone who has accepted Jesus into my heart, who has made a decision to follow Jesus as saviour, I think that I can relate to this. For the last couple of months, and even more so as I've been preparing this, I've felt the challenge or the nudge by God on how easy it is for me to find time or 
to make space for things. For me, it's the ease which I can, just to please you, Vic, to put a run into my day. <laughs> or the ease in which I can turn the television on and plough through several episodes of whatever it is that I happen to be watching at the time. It could even be saying yes to a friend that I really want to see, that I just would rather put other things on hold because I want to spend time with them. Now, that's not to say that any of those things are bad. They're not. But the question that I kind of came back to is, do I allow space to spend time with Jesus just as easily? The space to get to know him more, to hear more of his heart. It's easy to say, particularly at this time of year with Christmas preparation, that we're too busy. But I would guess, and certainly hope, I'm not the only person that struggles to make space for God all year round, not just at Christmas. And I wonder if in the noise of Christmas, we should be stopping for a minute and asking Jesus to reveal what it is that can crowd him out in our own lives or in our own way, the ways that we are saying, I'm sorry, but there's no space for you here, God. It's just too full. The other thing that I've felt prompted about again, both personally and for us that are Christians, is just to stop and ask if there are rooms in my or our life that we haven't allowed space for Jesus into. Now, they can be places of pain, disappointment and hurt. But I think equally, there can also be places where we're content and comfortable with how things are. Places that we don't want changing places that we don't want disturbing. We don't really want Jesus to to come in fully into that room. And if you were here for Lizzie's preach a couple of weeks ago, it could also be that we aren't allowing God's space into where we're comfortable in church, where he might want us to step up into roles or make space. And I do think that we are really good at doing that. And I think people are exceedingly hospitable here. And we often step up to the plate, more often than not. But I also think that sometimes it's just good to stop and ask the question between us and God, is there room in my life where I'm not fully letting you in? I've also found something quite amazing and beautiful looking into the birth of Jesus in this way. There isn't the grandeur of an earthly king. It's not Caesar Augustus in ruling the Roman world. It's not the pronouncement of a new heir to the throne that we see in this country. There's no royal note being pinned to the gates of a palace here. There's no photo of Mary looking like she's just stepped out of a salon with her new baby in the tabloids the next day, and we have all seen the pictures, even if we don't want to. (laughs) No, this is the most ordinary and simple of arrivals. At the same time, it's the most extraordinary arrival. It is God becoming man in the everydayness of Bethlehem. I'm just going to finish with a quote that I really love, and it's from Charles Spurgeon. Would it have been fitting that the man who was to die naked on the cross should be robed in purple at his birth? Would it not have been inappropriate that the Redeemer who was to be buried in a borrowed tomb should be born anywhere but in the humblest of shed? The manger and the cross, standing at two extremities of the Saviour's earthly life, seem most compatible the one to the other.